It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, of course, L. Joy Williams and your neighborhood political strategist. And I'm happy that you made it to class this morning, whether or not you are listening live or you are playing this back on your favorite device. Thank you so much for joining us. Have you seen the docuseries on Netflix called Immigration Nation? It's not new, so it's not going to show up if you are just tuning it on. It actually came out a couple of years ago or maybe 2020, but it's a multi-part series that highlights immigration in America, and it covers everything from ICE enforcement, family seeking asylum, what happens in immigration court, and immigration activism overall. So watching the series and even reading the news cycle over the past couple of years, I thought about how I would tackle discussing immigration here on Sunday Civics. Basically asking myself, what is the civics angle that I should, or the journey I should take you on in discussing this issue that obviously comes up all the time. Right now we're seeing a little bit of news focus on it, particularly when it comes to the southern border. There's always these fear-mongering headlines that happen when it pertains to immigration. Somehow all of the drug dealers, all of the terrorists, and everybody is coming over in large caravans. So personally, I've wanted to understand the issues and the challenges and what the call to action of that phrase, comprehensive immigration reform. What does that mean? What does that include? What does it affect? So I thought I would bring you along on the journey of understanding what that means from a civics perspective. Because when you begin to organize around an issue, whether you're developing public policy or you're building community or coalition with other groups, you first have to begin by educating yourself on the issue. You're identifying the people that are impacted, talking with them, building community, identifying other organizations and leaders that are in the space and determine, this is a big one, who the decision makers are who have the power to make change. All of this has to happen before you develop goals, suggest policy or legislation, and really to understand the phrase comprehensive immigration reform, we need to understand what the system is. Most people think, or even those of you who may believe that you are very active and very progressive, that there is some line that exists, that people are jumping over or skipping and things of that nature. I know that there isn't a line, that our immigration policy overall is broken, but admittedly, I don't know the nuts and bolts of it. And I'm not trying to be an immigration attorney. <laughs> I'm not trying to start a whole new career. But in order to really understand the issue, to know how I can incorporate it into overall public policy and organizing, 
I need to have a baseline understanding of what's broken, what is the issue at hand, and particularly if you are in coalition with other groups and organizing and this is their primary issue, you want to make sure that you have a basic understanding of what's at stake, what's the call to action, and how you can contribute. So this week and next week, I'm bringing folks to the front of the class for this discussion for the question of who the decision makers are, primarily for immigration, that answer is Congress. So I'm bringing Congresswoman Linda Sanchez to the front of the class. She is among what are called the closers, who are a group of representatives working with President Biden, in their words, to prioritize a path to citizenship for millions of people seeking home and refuge in this country, treat our undocumented population humanely, restore family unity, and work to mitigate the root causes of migration. I also had a conversation with Cynthia Garcia. She's the National Campaigns Manager for Community Protection of United We Dream. We talked about the dreamers and the unsettled citizenship status of thousands of young people. And I'm also excited about the conversation next week when we talk with the founder and executive director of African Communities Together about the African immigrant experience, which is rarely discussed or featured in the national conversation. Then I I do want to understand, getting back to that analogy of a line, I do want to understand what the process is of becoming a citizen if you are not born here. What is the process? Do you apply from your other country? Do you apply when you get here? How long does it take? How much does it cost? I don't think that most of us have a grasp on what is involved in that process. And so we'll do a short conversation with some immigration attorneys about that process because a lot of us are unaware unless you have family, unless you yourself experience this you know, the average person does not understand. They do think it's a line. They do think people are not waiting their turn. So those are some of the questions that some of you emailed me about, some of you DM'd me about, some of the questions I had on my own. But as we're having this conversation, I invite you to continue to send me messages and continue to send the questions because this is really important to be involved and understand the issues that are talked about on a national level and how it impacts us overall, how it impacts us economically, how it impacts our housing policy, how it impacts education, how it impacts where we live and the people within our community. So it's really important that we have at least a basic understanding of something as this large and of this magnitude. So when we come back from break, we'll dive right into the conversation with Congresswoman Linda Sanchez here on Sunday Civics. We'll be right back. All the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. When we are Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Our guest, who is a former labor lawyer, she's the representative from California's 38th Congressional District, Representative Linda Sanchez. Thank you so very much for joining us. 
Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're going to start where we start with every guest with you sharing the story of your first civic action. Sure. So my earliest recollection, um, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. She raised seven children, um, but she began volunteering as like a room mom in our elementary school classes. And then later she became a paid teacher's assistant. And she was a real big advocate for bilingual education. This was back when it was not super common and when it, um, you know, schools would just sort of shove immigrant kids in the back of the class and if they succeeded, well, good for them. And if not, oh, well. So she was a big proponent of bilingual education. I remember going with her to conferences um, to talk about the need for bilingual education in schools so that kids had uh, a meaningful education and a, and a real opportunity in life. Um, and I remember when um, the very last immigration reform was passed more than 35 years ago, um, she would set up essentially sort of like a clinic in our living room where parents of kids that went to the schools uh, that she worked in would come in and um, because I knew how to type, we would help them fill out their immigration uh, paperwork so that they could apply for their citizenship. So those are my earliest recollections of my first uh, meaningful civic engagement. I absolutely love the typewriter situation because I had have been put to work with my word processor a number of times. Yeah, but then we didn't have word processors. We had typewriters. Yes. So once I learned, I learned on a regular typewriter and then the word processor. And then once like in the neighborhood, it was just like, oh, Joy got a word processor. She can, like, she can do everybody's resume. That like, that was my little side hustle um, yeah. of doing resumes and typing them at that point. So first of all, I got to say that I love the moniker that your team puts that you have been kicking ass for the working class. I love that. And I need it on a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope y'all sell shirts because I'm buying one. <laughs> but <laughs> but I want to get to the conversation about comprehensive immigration reform in Congress because you are among the seven members of Congress who are part of the Immigration Closers Group who are responsible for shepherding through Congress comprehensive immigration form that would address this not only for dreamers and farmers and you know others but also deal with the migration crisis overall so talk to us a bit about you know what that means what to put into perspective for someone that's you know different from the jargon and different from the politics that are played out on cable news in terms of what the problem is in terms of immigration Sure. So um, it, I think the first place that we need to start is in understanding that our immigration laws and our system for applying for citizenship has not been updated in over 30 years. So um, we have a tremendous backlog of cases that, that take forever for people to get through um, the citizenship process. Um, it's very expensive. It's very time consuming. Um, and there are many avenues that are, uh, there are very few avenues, I should say, by which people can actually adjust their status and become citizens. Um, not to mention that in predominantly countries to our south, there are some real 
critical things that are happening that push people to come to our southern border. Um, there is violence and death threats. There are, uh, you know, natural disasters that just completely have uh, devastated whole communities. And um, people are fleeing corruption and violence and these, you know, uh, traumatic, you know, weather events that basically leave them with nothing. So they're coming um, to our southern border. Um, many people are seeking asylum from uh, you know, uh, they're being targeted um, by political regimes or by gangs. Um, and we just don't have, we haven't, especially because of the last administration's very restrictive immigration policies, um, we haven't been able to get a, a, a handle around uh, making sure that these people can apply for asylum, where we house them um, while they wait for their case to be heard in court. Um, we have too few immigration judges. Um, and so the process is really just overburdened. And we really need to revamp our immigration system. We need to streamline it. Um, we need to make it fit with what our needs are now. I mean, if you look at our population, um, we have a worker shortage. Um, yeah, I hear that from small businesses in, in my district all the time. They can't find uh, folks to take jobs. Um, we have the lowest unemployment rate uh, in decades, uh, it's under 4%. Um, and many immigrants could fill those jobs, but we have a system that doesn't allow them to. Um, in this country, our birth rate is below two. So it's less than replacement rate for parents. So really for the future of this country and our future workforce, we're going to need people from somewhere. And if we could just revamp our immigration system, uh, we could get a flow that meets our needs without, um, you know, without it being, you know, overwhelming. Um, but there's real resistance because pretty much uh, the Republican caucus it just does not want to do anything on immigration. They want to scare people into thinking that there's, you know, uh, violent criminals coming into the border every day and that they're taking our jobs. And they're, you know, I mean, just the worst stereotypes that you can imagine, they're frightening people. And so people see immigration as this big, scary thing, but it, it's really not. We're, we're a country that's built on immigrants. We've had successive waves of immigration, and that's really what makes this country great. Um, but unless we get our hands around revamping the system, uh, unless we start making investments that will help people in the Northern Triangle countries, um, help root out those root causes uh, that force them to flee, corruption and violence and hunger, um, we're never going to solve our immigration, um, you know, problem. The, the problem is, is that it, our system's just overburdened and it's, um, it's just, it's not workable anymore. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, you mentioned about some of the technical, not technical, but sort of administrative issue, the lack of judges, the backlog of the process from that standpoint, people not knowing what the, pro <laughs> what the process is. I mean, the average person you can stop on the street probably doesn't know, you know, what the process is from that standpoint. Is that part of some of the legislation that needs, uh, that needs to happen is sort of addressing those logistics of the system? Yeah, they're, they're, um, the U.S. Citizenship Act, which was, by the way, the first bill that um, President Biden uh, had introduced 
in his um, administration, and I, I was honored that he asked me to be the author of that bill. Um, that really addressed a lot of these issues that we're talking about. It made investment. It would make investments um, in things like immigration judges, in things like you know attorneys for applicants, because um, right now you're not guaranteed an attorney to plead your case or help you. And um, most migrants that that aren't represented by legal counsel don't end up getting their asylum um, applications approved. Um, it may, would make technological investments to streamline the system. A uh, lot of really great benefits in this in this bill. And it would create a path for many people who've been living and working in this country, not just years, but decades. Many of them have roots in this country. They've uh, you know graduated from college. They want to work and contribute to their communities. And um, our immigration system keeps them in limbo and, and forces them to, you know, to just wait. And, uh, you know, they can't afford to wait any longer. Um, there are folks in this country that have been here since they were infants. They didn't know that they were brought here without, uh, you know, immigration status. They find out later in their life and they have no ties really to their parents' home country. Um, and yet we punish them and don't allow them, you know, the freedom to travel outside of the United States, the ability to oftentimes get work permits um, so that they can work. And it's really um, just an untenable situation. We need to fix it. Yeah. And lastly, as you mentioned, there is a lot of fear mongering regarding the immigration coming from the southern border. But immigrants come from all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, I actually have a know a number of people who work for larger corporations and work in divisions where they're bringing people over with technical skills and they do the whole immigration process for them. Right. And it's not people from the southern border, primarily as people, you know, from Asian countries or European countries and things of that nature. So there seems to be this imbalance also of those who have the wealth and, and certain skills are provided the resources and support in order to come here, not only to work, but then also to provide a path to citizenship for them. Uh, very true. Um, something that nobody ever talks about because everybody just wants, I mean, well, certain people just want you to focus on the border, but I will say this. Most Undocumented immigrants in this country are people who came here on a visa. So they had permission to come into the country. They flew in on a plane. Uh, they came on vacation. They came to visit relatives and they overstayed. They just never went back. So it's not the border. And, you know, we get caught up in this whole paranoia that drugs and violence are coming in through the border. Most drugs come in through our seaports, not through our land borders. And uh, most of the terrorists that have, um, that we have caught caught coming into this country have come through the northern border from Canada, not from the southern border. But there is this paranoia and this fear mongering that exists uh, with people that are, and I hate to say it, but are brown. Um, there is just this bias um, against those immigrants. And I will say this, you are correct that many businesses can, can help um, people come to this country to work for them. But there is also, you know, an employment based uh, immigrant visa backlog and um, what the U.S. Citizenship Act would do is, you know, provide an earned path to citizenship for all undocumented students if they meet certain educational and work requirements. Uh, it clears the employment-based immigrant visa backlog and eliminates per-country limits 
on employment visas. Now, these are visas that you know, employers can show that there's a need for these workers. Um, it eliminates visa caps uh, on visas for graduates of U.S. universities with advanced STEM degrees who want to stay in the United States. Uh, we educate them. We educate foreign students that come here. They get these advanced degrees in STEM. And then because our immigration system is so broken uh, and doesn't allow them to stay, they go to other countries like Canada. Um, and it would allow people who have been living and working in the United States uh, prior to January 1st of, of 2020 uh, a chance to get in line and to adjust their status. So that that would clear a lot of folks that have been living and working in the United States uh, for decades. So um, it, yeah. would, it would eliminate a lot of the imbalances that exist in our current immigration system. Yeah. Well, Congresswoman, I know that you have to head to votes. We heard <laughs> we heard the sound there. So I want to thank you for taking an opportunity to talk with us about it. Lastly, what can people do who are listening, who are watching, who agree with you? What can they do in order to further push and advance for not only this legislation, but addressing immigration in their own communities? Yeah, so um, my um, best recommendation is you really need to make your voices heard to your elected representatives um, and to those who have not been on board with providing uh, immigration relief. Um, it's I, I meet with dreamers all the time and they have heartbreaking stories, but I am not the member that you need to convince to do this. We need folks to really weigh in with the Senate um, and with those elected representatives at the House level who are resistant to, um, to allowing immigration reform to go through. Um, it's only when they begin to hear um, from constituents that members who serve here are going to sit up and take notice that they can't, you know, they can't get away with inaction on immigration. We really need to uh, create this grassroots swell um, so that we can uh, get members to get off the fence or to or to actually support something that the vast majority of Americans is something like two thirds of Americans believe that we need to uh, provide a path to citizenship for immigrants and to fix our broken immigration system. So um, be vocal and be active, um, you know, in voicing your opinions and your concerns with your elected representatives. Well, thank you so very much, Congresswoman, for all you are doing to lead in this effort. And we look forward to following the progress, giving up, making sure our voice is heard on the issue, and then you coming back and celebrating the win. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it and invite me back anytime. Oh, of course. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be? Joining us at the front of the class to continue 
our conversation, our civics lesson, if you will, on immigration is Cynthia Garcia. Cynthia is an undocumented queer person born in Mexico who migrated to Oklahoma City almost 20 years ago. Cynthia began organizing and fighting deportations at the local level, empowering immigrant families and disrupting the collaboration between ICE and local law enforcement and continues to empower communities who are undocumented like herself. And yes, we will explain what ICE is and all of that other kind of stuff. <laughs> she now leads the Community Protection Campaign's work of United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth-led network in the country. She is herself protected from deportation because of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program. You know this is DACA. So welcome to the front of the class, Cynthia Garcia. Hello. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you so very much for joining us. And as I mentioned to you before, the, I, I wanted to do a series on immigration. I think it deserves more than just one episode, one conversation, because there are so many layers in this conversation and so, uh, so much misunderstanding of the process, the lack of process, and also the experiences of people who are undocumented from immigrant families in general. And so I wanted to have these conversations to really shed some light on a lot of these terms and phrases that are used on national media and in papers that give that are designed to give people one feeling <laughs> about things rather than understanding them overall. But before we get to all of that, since this is your first time on the show, I want you to share the story for us of your first civic action. Thank you. And thank you for, for allowing me the space to, to share with you all. When I think back on when was my first civic action, I think about as early as probably 2007 um, in Oklahoma at that moment, there was a legislation that was passing that was going to criminalize folks who supported in any way uh, immigrant communities without documentation. And I remember just feeling really disheartened and couldn't believe that the state was targeting families and communities like mine. And we started you know, gathering with a couple of uh, friends in high school, uh, draw some posters, and we actually marched down to the Capitol, joined other hundreds of people who were um, saying no to the bill and to the legislation. And I just felt really empowered, really seen, um, seeing other folks who maybe didn't share the same lived experience, but cared about the issue, cared about the humanity of the people who were going to be impacted by that legislation. And that was really one of my first baby steps into organizing. And I've always thought about how challenging it is to be civically engaged when you know we don't have access to voting. But even in that moment, I think it challenged uh, the notion of what being civically engaged is. And it just really redefined that uh, we can show up for our communities and for, for our neighbors and for our friends and for our loved ones uh, in every capacity that we, that we have access to. And so, organizing a walk in high school, going to the Capitol and really demanding the humanity of people like myself and our communities was one of my first spaces when I felt deeply civic engaged and also connected to the rest of the community who was also fighting for their community. I think that is so important because we spend a lot of time on this show talking about how civic engagement is more than just voting. 
and how there are many different ways in which people can participate in their own governance and participate in civic engagement in general. And that is something really for young people. I think it's an important message because we do spend time in, whether it's in school or even in churches or sort of outside society, telling young people, when you get to vote, when you become an adult, like these are these things. And not that there are actions and engagements that you can take before then, that you can participate in your own governance in, in that space. Talk to us now about, you know, I'm titling this The Dreamers, really talking about DACA. We hear that phrase on cable news networks. We hear lots of stories about The Dreamers. But put in context for someone who's, you know, settled in their chair or in their car and had the opportunity to listen to your voice this morning about the humanity of the young people that are in this program. Yeah, and I mean, I I think it's really easy to detach from terms like DACA and Dreamer and immigration. Um, because often we think of those terms as just separate from people who actually are living and we're engaging with in a day-to-day. And so, as you shared, I'm a DACA recipient myself. I came to the U.S. at the age of 15, uh, and I did not um, have any documentation until probably almost 10 years later, which meant there was a lot of challenges. I come from a mixed-status family. That means... Some of my family have been here for generations. Other of my family lived in Mexico for a long time. And prior to this hyper-militarization of the border, people were able to come work and go back and travel, and it was a lot more accessible. And then when my parents uh, first came into Oklahoma, uh, we came in without an access to a visa or access to permanent um, stay. And so it was a challenge for the first 10 years to have access to any, you know, work permits, to be able to actually live without fear of deportation. And in 2012, due to the organizing of um, community leaders uh, and organizations like United We Dream, the Obama administration passes uh, protection for undocumented youth uh, that actually covers uh, protection for people like myself And it's then when we get this small opening to some kind of protection from deportation. And it's gonna be 10 years already. Um, And I think about it in a way that DACA changed the lives of many people like myself, but that was just one fraction of the millions of people who live in fear every day of being deported, who are criminalized for trying to provide for their families who are criminalized for our inherent need to move. Um, you know, when, when we are put in conditions where we're not thriving, it's a natural need to be able to try to identify a place where we can make it home. Um, and I think about DACA as one of the tools that actually just helped me empower more, but it's also been really challenging. Uh, my parents are undocumented. And to this day, it pains me that they don't have access to driver's licenses, that the state of Oklahoma, as many other state legislatures, continue to vilify them 
and not actually see the humanity and the love that they have for for their community and their kids and their loved ones. Um, because that's why people migrate. People migrate to feel the sense of connection, to have the opportunity to thrive, to have the opportunity to expand, not just financially, but just culturally to be in communities where they feel loved and respected and empowered. And so DACA has been one of the things that really changed my life and changed the life of almost a million people, but it was not permanent. It was not meant to be something that carry over for a decade. And every two years when I have to renew uh, my, my DACA permit, it's this looming fear that I may not qualify anymore or that if the process, something, there's an error that they send me a letter that I need to reapply or that I need to submit additional information. It's a lot more um, emotional and a lot more painful than the news make it out to be. And it's this sort of just almost comical subscription to be in the US. And I say comical because it just feels so disconnected from the humanity of the people who are actually in the program and the humanity of the immigrant community at large who just wants the opportunity to thrive and, and be in peace in their communities. Um, yeah, and not have to be challenged uh, whether they are deserving or not of dignity and respect. So I'm going to put aside so many of my breadcrumb conversations in my head from what you just said. One, in that, you know, I, you know, I have this thought of like, do our, you know, modern creation of countries and borders or whatever is actually not sufficient for how human beings like exist, <laughs> you know, in terms of migrating between, you know, like we're a migrant entity, Right. Like that's what we like. That's what we do. It's what animals do, too. It's just like, you know, so does that fit within that standpoint? So that's a whole nother anthropology like conversation. But I want to go some, back to something you said in the beginning that the criminalization of crossing borders and that between Mexico and the United States, there had existed, it, you know, this free travel, primarily because of employment. One, the need for employment for some people, and then two, the need for workers, you know, on the other side, that there, you, there, there wasn't this you know, hard stance that their people freely moved back and forth. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think that doesn't get talked about a lot in this conversation. It seems that what is given to us in terms of the media description is that there all of a sudden was this onslaught and not that policy actually changed and the situations actually changed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to just go back in moments in history, right? When things begin to shift, uh, you begin to see some sort of action against just mass incarceration and then how policy choices were made to maintain and sustain incarceration as a profitable model. Uh, and then who is your next target as you continue to expand uh, incarceration? Um, immigration takes sort of this like pilot as they begin to really put immigrant detention or immigrants in detention, which is really incarceration of, of immigrants. I hate having to have that separate definition. People are incarcerated 
for not having status or for crossing the border. And I think that one of the pieces is as the U.S. Uh, was going through different wars, you know, they will expand the need for workers and so that they'll have that free flow. But then once things went sort of, quote unquote, back to normal, then there was an overflow of, of labor. And so then that's when mass deportations were happening. That's when people were getting detained through raids. That's when policy was limiting how many people can come from, from South and Central America while still having open pretty much a specific demographics that they wanted to continue to come to the US. And as we have learned more and more about what are actually driving those policies, you really begin to point out that as um, incarceration begin to be looked at more closely than the folks who were investing in the carceral system saw the immigration policy as a space to be able to replace their gains. And so they began to lobby to expand bed quotas that allow people to be detained for, you know, permanently while their case was moving. They continued to expand in the fear tactics that people have that visceral response of we have to secure the border. We have to keep people out. And those are very tied together. It's a lot of economic labor but also for profit system. Um, immigration is driven by fear tactics because there's people behind those conversations that need money to continue to come in. And they see us like a sign symbol of money. They know that as long as people continue to be detained, continue to be criminalized, continue to be incarcerated, their pockets will be full. And as you shared, um, people's freedom of movement is inherent. I mean, people have taking advantage of the land and giving back to the land. It's a relationship that has existed before even there were concept of borders. And I think what is happening is that racialized capitalism continues to identify the folks who are more vulnerable and who they can continue to marginalize and make profit out of them. Yeah. So I want to move now to the conversation about how United We Dream and other organizations and other activists, individual activists, attempt to disrupt the collaboration that ICE, which is the federal law enforcement entity that exists, which is new, <laughs> um, to manage the the border, if you will, or manage people not being here, being documented or undocumented. I don't want to say, I hate using the word illegal because that just doesn't, that I don't understand how a person can be illegal, but I want to talk about the movement that United We Dream as well as others try to disrupt that and why. Yeah, I think it's critical, uh, as you share, right, the uh, immigration and customs enforcement eyes as we, as we know it, uh, hasn't existed for a long time. They actually, uh, it's born more directly after 9-11 and this sort of like uh, propaganda of fearing of people who don't look American or who don't look like us and whatever the us means. Um, but I think one of the things that was crucial during the last 20 years has been that law enforcement played a very crucial role 
in how they had access to the immigrant community, right? Uh, the police is actually in our neighborhoods over policing communities of color. And so one of the assessments that the United with Dream and multiple movement partners did was in places, for example, like Oklahoma, we don't see vans of CBP, which is Customs and Border Patrol, uh, or protection in this case, um, as the actual agency name, but we don't see CBP vehicles roaming around our neighborhoods. We don't see vans with, you know, ICE or DHS logos, Department of Homeland Security, drumming in our communities. We see cop cars. We see police uh, who are questioning people about documentation, who, if you are stopped without a driver's license, end up taking you into a county jail or a sheriff's uh, jail, and then you end up being processed for not having documentation, for not having an ID, for not having a license. And so one of the things that we knew as we were working to, to fight for protection for people at the federal level, that one of the ways in which we can disrupt the risk that our communities was under was disrupting those collaborations. We knew that if we can create um, enough engagement for community to actually know how they could protect themselves and protect their community at large, that we will create enough power to be able to demand that uh, counties or, or city departments didn't actually collaborate with ICE. And this also comes at the threat and the risk of what we have seen over the last 20 years from this agency. I mean, people have been dying inside of detention. The horrific conditions and the horrific violations of human rights, I mean, physical, emotional, you name it, this agency has perpetrated a tremendous amount of harm in the community. And so we wanted to really continue to push so that we can cut access to our people. We can cut the way in which they come and grab us with the resources of local law enforcement. And we started really pushing against 287G programs, which is a program that the Department of Homeland Security is able to utilize to have access to information, to agents that act as um, immigration agents in our communities. And we were successful in many ways and we're still in that fight. We know that the Biden administration promised during the campaign that they will end those contracts. Um, and we're gonna continue to fight and push that as we collaborate with our community and work with them to push against the narrative that more cops, more agents keep us safe, actually more resources, more investment, more of us in, in, in leadership positions, advocating for one another, that's actually what keeps us safe. So lastly, Cynthia, I want to ask you for folks who are listening who are, you know, they may detach themselves from this because, you know, they themselves are not undocumented. They don't know anyone or have or knowingly know anyone. <laughs> right. And they feel like this is something that is not their fight, not something that they need to be involved with, doesn't impact them directly at all. What actions, one, would you suggest they do for their in own internal reflection? And then two, if they are then moved to participate, to act, what are some of the things that they can do to join in on the fight? 
That's a great question. And I always think about how the pandemic has really shown us how much we really need one another to be able to protect one another. And I think about all of the lack of investments that happen in your community don't impact you only, it impacts the community at large. So when there are attacks on immigrant community, it will it will impact you one way or another, whether you know it just yet or whether you'll see it later down the road. And so I always think about how do we intentionally think about, okay, there is COVID relief, if there is uh, education resources, how does that umbrella continue to expand to every person in our community? And if they are leaving specific people out, then you know that that umbrella will also expand so there will be a point where it also excludes you. And so I think that those are some of the pieces in which has been helpful to reframe how we think about our collective care and our collective power. Um, the other piece around like, how can people really lean in? There's a lot of local organizing that happens in the community, whether people are explicitly saying they're supporting undocumented immigrants or just the immigrant community at large having conversations that challenge your worldviews, having conversations that lean into the humanity of every person, whether you met them or haven't met them yet, I think those are crucial. Uh, a lot of the fear mongering that is used against the multiple different communities, it's on the othering of, of people. And so when you get to know your neighbors, when you get to know the people in your community, you begin to build those relationships where it's harder to draw a wedge to separate you. And so I think it's important to continue to lean into that community building so that you're showing up. Um, and then one thing I will say around how do we do this work together too, I think about all of the issues that are happening in our local county and state, they impact more than the people who are in that, in that very specific legislation. And so just leaning in into the groups that are leading the work showing up with the best intention. And I think being comfortable with the discomfort of growth and learning. If we are being challenged, if we are feeling uncomfortable because it's a content or a story that we are unfamiliar with, that is good. Sometimes we need that discomfort so that we can grow outside of our own circle. Um, and I think that's power and just continue to see the humanity of every person you interact with. I think it's really easy to see numbers, 2 million people deported, 11 million undocumented, and forget that there are Cynthia's, there are family members, there are students, everybody has a different story. And I think they're all worth uh, the humanity and dignity that they are claiming and that they are entitled to. And we want that for one another. So I think that is crucial to continue to do this work collectively. Cynthia, I want to thank you so very much. I would have you on anytime. I think you describe things so succinctly and so in depth at the same time. I really appreciate the conversation and having you a part of this series as we try to break down for folks the different aspects. Because as you mentioned, there are so many different moving parts and there is no linear way in which to address all of these things, right? We need people at different fronts, but it's also about us individually, whether we are directly impacted or not, to begin to challenge what we are receiving in terms of information 
in terms of who people are, the, the lack of humanity that is not present in the discussions and how we change our mindset to not think about immigration and the, the need for reform and others as how do we prevent people from, you know, not coming in and, you know, that and rather than how do we make something forward that's future driven and works for all of us in our communities and more importantly, doesn't put people in harm's way. So thanks so much to you and to United We Dream for all of the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. Ooh.